cool weather. And what do I know? This morning, you know, I thought it might rain, but God instead has just given us some great cloud cover, as uh, Mrs. Wonderlick said. And we have some uh, little raindrops popping once in a while. All that is cool. I don't know about you guys, but I find that lately I've been waking up in the mornings and finding myself several times during the day feeling really angry. Uh, it, it's not typical for me, if you know me at all, to be an angry person. I uh, usually am kidding with people and joking around, but uh, it just seems to be a combination of things. Uh, COVID, isolation, uh, the cultural unrest that we seem to be involved with, the change in church leadership, all of it has just made life different. Uh, way different than I imagined last year at this time. And probably because of my personality, when I think of those things, it just makes me mad. It just just gets my blood boiling. And I was trying to do my best to cover it, because, you know, as Christians, we're not supposed to be mad, right? We're supposed to always be happy, full of joy, you know? Joy, joy, joy. <laughs> then my wife, she nailed me a couple of weeks ago, and she says, Dave, you're an angry person. You got to stop this. Every time I talk to you, you seem to just go on this dark stream of thought of what's going on and how things aren't right and what you're supposed to be doing and not doing and so forth. And I had to take her seriously at that. It really caused me to think. So a few weeks or a week ago, I woke up about four in the morning and it just started. I wasn't trying to think of anything. I just swung my legs over the edge of the bed, sat there for a while started off praising God for the new day and immediately these dark thoughts started coming into my mind. And so I did what Iona and I do from time to time is I took uh, one of the G's of God as we call them, uh, but it was a great ministry that has identified uh, four descriptions of God. Uh, and they're all G's. God is good, God is great, God is gracious, God is glorious. I keep them on a laminated card in my Bible. I often recommend it to other people. Preacher, heal thyself. So I started thinking about that, and I just picked glorious at random. God is glorious. Wow. What does that mean? How do I see him as glorious? How can I just enter into his presence and, and just take that apart? God is glorious. There's nothing, no one like him. I've been reading in Isaiah lately, and God is describing how people turn so easily to idols. But what I really love is when you get to chapter 6, and Isaiah describes the throne room of God, and he writes this, starting in verse 5. Um, no, excuse me, I'm going to go back up a little higher. He says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, which are some angels. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And all I could do is think about this. And the same thing is repeated in the New Testament. In the book of Revelation, chapter 4, we have another vision. 
of the throne room of God, a little more detailed. And as I focused on that with the seraphim flying and the, and the creatures with the four faces and, and just the scene, you know, of the 24 elders in the book of Revelation bowing down before God. And all I could think of is, what problems do I have? What situations am I experiencing that are too big for this glorious God? And before I knew it, I felt like I was right there in his throne room listening to him, listening to the songs, of seeing the hosts of heaven flying about and all the saints of glory standing there, worshiping their king. And I thought, nothing, nothing is bigger than God. He can handle every single situation. We need him so, so desperately. That's sanctification. We started a series a couple of weeks ago looking at a book called Devoted to God by Sinclair Ferguson, and we've been focused on the theological idea of sanctification. If you remember, we talked about how you come to the Lord, you, you hear a presentation of the gospel. <clears throat> you might hear someone tell you about how Jesus wants to be your friend. Uh, Jesus died for your sins. All you have to do is invite him into your life and begin this great relationship with God through his son, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And maybe you raised a hand, maybe you walked an aisle, maybe you were just quiet in your own room when you first thought of that. And you did business with the Lord. What an awesome event. That is justification. You have just been made just. You are now free of the penalty of your sin before God. And then what we're focusing on is what happens next. After you've had that experience with the Lord, and before you stand before him, after you die, in that in-between in process, it is sanctification. You are learning what it means to be a son or daughter of God. It's a great, great experience, and it should make a huge difference in our lives. Our focus this morning is going to be on a passage in the book of Galatians, chapter 2. And we're just reading one verse today, Galatians 2, verse 20. The Apostle Paul is writing this. We're all probably familiar with this little epistle, this letter to the church of Galatia. And Paul is kind of arguing with those that would seek to enslave those who have newly found what it means to be saved in Christ by giving them a whole bunch of rules and laws that they have to follow. And Paul says, let me set the record straight here. You've been justified. The penalty is removed. And right before verse 20, Paul seems to be dealing with nothing but justification. But then he comes home with this passage, which is an amazing uh, set of words. And I'm just going to read them for us. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's an amazing verse. I, I just, when I read that, sometimes I just can't believe that that's the truth. But this is truth from God himself to us. I want to read it one more time, and if you were spacing out there for a second, pay, pay attention. I have been crucified. Paul says, I've been crucified. And you can even put this in the present tense. I'm being crucified with Christ. 
it is no longer I who am living, but Christ is living in me. And the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loves me and gives himself for me. It's a point-in-time action that has ongoing consequences. It's an amazing, amazing verse. Well, there's four things that we want to focus on this morning out of this verse. Four, in a sense, uh, prepositional statements, right? And so I'm going to kind of jump around within the verse. But let me just start off with this. Uh, This verse says this, first of all, that Jesus gave himself for me. It's right at the end of that verse. Jesus gave himself for me. What a statement. What power. The Son of God, co-creator, the one who sustains, the one who gave his life for us, he did that for you and for me. It's not just a bunch of people, nameless, faceless. It's for each of us as individuals. Paul says, Jesus gave himself for me. Sometimes we think that our faith journey begins when we pray that prayer, as I just said, when we walk that aisle, when we raise our hand, when we're in youth group or something, or a friend shares the gospel with us. But that is not the case. It actually begins with the incarnation, when Jesus himself comes from heaven and empties himself of his glory. Looking in Philippians chapter 2, I'll start reading in verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Here's so important of a statement. But made himself nothing. Can God make himself nothing? What he's saying is relative to us, yes. He made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Jesus gave himself for you and I. What a tremendous statement. Because of what he was willing to do, we now have an opportunity to live like him. That's the first statement of sanctification that Paul's trying to make here. Christ gave himself for us. It started at his incarnation. And because it starts there, and because we enter that process when we first encounter God, then after we go forward from that, we're living in a whole new frame of mind. We're living a new life. Christ gave himself for us. The second thing that is going to say here is that we live in Christ. We live in Christ. That's an amazing statement. Think about this for a second. When Paul was preaching this word to the people of his day, it wasn't so hard for them to want to have what he was offering. Uh, He was preaching to people who were slaves, journeymen, artisans, people that were from all walks of life, people who had been oppressed, people who were marginalized. And when he offered them a whole new life, that they could be in relationship with God himself, they were amazed. They said, yes, we want that. We'll take that. And that you're telling me that I can live in Christ? How's that possible? Well, actually, the stress of the the preposition here, in, uh, Sinclair Ferguson argues, should be understood as into. It's an immersion. 
I'm not just in Christ, I'm immersed in Christ once I experience justification through him. The problem is we feel torn at times as Christians who live in this country today. Some of us, we live such comfortable lives, I would say most of us. We have really nice houses, we have great cars, we take vacations, we see our families, we have enough to eat, some of us too much to eat, whatever the case. And then we start thinking about, well, what does it mean to walk with God? And we feel this tension, like we're being torn in two. Do I go this way or do I go this way? I, I could spend my days being retired. I could spend my days playing golf. I could spend my days just enjoying life, fo focusing on football or baseball or whatever it is that we're focused on. But in Paul's day, life was hard. Life was dangerous, especially for the Christian. To have the promise that you could live in Christ and the direction that it should be immersed into Christ was an amazing call. It's a call to a life that they had not thought of before. But if you know Jesus Christ, it's a call to immersion in his personhood. When I was a kid, we celebrated Halloween. And uh, in our little grade school in Omaha, in the afternoon on Halloween day, we were allowed to bring or dress up in our Halloween costume. And then part of the day was having candy and playing games. But then the big event was we were all marched out to the street in front of the school. And we lined up almost like a fire drill, except we were all dressed in our Halloween outfits. And then we did a march, a parade, if you will, around the block. And everybody came out. The parents were there with their cameras, and people were just waving from their porches. But it was always a big deal. It was a big deal. And for me, in my second grade year, we had a babysitter that we went to. And uh, I went home for lunch. And I, I ate lunch. And we got ready to get in our costumes. My mom had taken my brother and I to a, a, a dime store to get these. And of course, in those days, when you looked at the costume, it was just a square box with a kind of plastic face that had a rubber band around the back. That was your mask. And underneath it was the actual costume. Usually, you know, it was some kind of outfit you put your legs into and your arms and you zip it up. And now you're what? You're the skeleton, you're the Hulk, you're whatever you wanted to be that year. And that year I had chosen that I wanted to be a skeleton. So I was so excited. I got to the box, I ripped the lid off, I put the mask on. Uh, I thought I looked really good looking in the mirror. And then I pulled out that costume you know, it was a girl skeleton, you right? You know, it had a little skirt, a little frilly skirt, and the bones were just over the top part, the chest and the arms, and I was just so disappointed. How could I do this? How could I wear this? I can't call my mom and say, hey, go, let's go get a new costume. That would have been impossible. Well, my babysitter believed she was coming to the rescue because she had a couple of boys, and she said, I'll tell you what, you get into this costume. That's one that I made for my boys years ago, and it was Tweety Bird. Tweety Bird? Yes, Tweety Bird. It was like a flannel wool, I don't know what it was, it was hot. And you put your legs in it, and you put it on, and it was just kind of a blah color, kind of not quite tan, not quite brown. And you put on your little head thing, and it was a full head. And I went to school. I walked to school thinking, this is horrible. Everybody's going to make fun of me. I can't breathe in this thing, but I'll tell you what, 
I was immersed in Tweety Bird. <laughs> I decided I was going to be Tweety Bird. And to the best of my ability, I acted like Tweety Bird that afternoon. After a while, I pulled the hood off and threw it down. And somebody said, you know, you look, and they named something else. And I was like, yeah, that's exactly what I'm trying to be, right? Not Tweety Bird. But whatever the case, I was immersed in it. I couldn't hide it. When you're in Christ, you're immersed into him. It's something that you step into. And far from being an embarrassment, it's the greatest thing in this life that you can do. I want to be fully, wholly, 100% committed to my walk with Jesus Christ. I want to be in, into Christ. Paul will say in a second here that we are no longer living as we once were. We shed all aspects of our old life, and now we are alive in Christ. The third thing that Paul says in this Galatians passage is that we have been crucified with Christ. We are crucified with Christ. That's an amazing statement as well. And Paul feels it's necessary for us to do this because each of these four statements are actually identity statements. He's trying to create in the process of sanctification what should lead to transformation four identity statements that is going to cause us to see ourselves and others to see ourselves in a totally different way than the way we had been. I have been crucified with Christ. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes I use the symbol BC when I write in my journal or I reference something. That lets me know that what I'm talking about is from my before Christ days, BC. Uh, I'm dealing with this temptation. I'm dealing with this thought pattern. This is a leftover from those days. They can get a hold of your soul. They can get a hold of who you are. And you fight those all the time before Christ. But now Paul is saying this. Now, you've been crucified. And if you're a believer in Christ today, you're sitting here and you are AC after the crucifixion. You see, when Jesus went to the cross, as only he could do, he took you from your family membership in your old family, which was the family of Adam. And how is the family of Adam described in Scripture? Sinful, right? Just think of Adam, right? Condemning, judgmental, no hope, and worst of all, an enemy of God. We've chosen to be in that position. And when you come to Christ, you've been crucified with Christ, that old man is put to death. Now, this doesn't mean that I stop being Dave Foster. It doesn't mean that you stop being who you are. It just means that that which you once were, B.C., has now become A.C. I am now am after the crucifixion. I am a new creature in Christ. I don't look anything like I used to look before. It's true. On the morning of, or evening of July 30th, 1974, I knelt in the living room of my house, and I prayed that prayer with my brother to ask Christ into my life, and I've never been the same since. Oh, I struggle with things. Uh, the old man shows up from time to time, but I'm not bound by him any longer. I don't have to obey what it tells me to do. I'm a new creature in Christ. I've been crucified with him. And here's the cool part that Paul's making a point of in Galatians, is that because Jesus went to the cross, only he could do that, by the way. 
Only he could be the one, the son of God, the perfect one, who also was fully man, who went to that cross, taking that heavy beam of wood up the hill to Golgotha, the place of execution, and willfully, and it was willfully, because he could have, as we believe, since he was God, called down a whole host of heaven to rescue him, but he willfully stretched out his arms on that beam and allowed a person of a different race, a different culture, to slam a spike in between his carpal bones, right? And nail him to that cross. And then he crossed his ankles. And he did the same thing, willfully. Because he had to pay the price for our sins. And they hoisted him up and put him on that cross. And he stayed there for the entire day. And they shoved that sword his spear up into his side to make sure that he was dead. Christ was crucified. This man made the choice to be crucified once in time to pay the penalty for sins of billions for all time, as only he could do. And because he did that, Paul says, identify with that, because through that, we get all of the benefits of having a life with Christ. What are those benefits? Oh, there's so many of them. So many of them. We, we, we are immediately in the family of God. We were in the family of Adam. Now I'm in the family of Jesus Christ, according to Ephesians chapter 1. I've been adopted into this new family. You're an adopted son. You're an adopted daughter. I'm a citizen of heaven. I have a great commission. God answers my prayer. I can go into the throne room of God like I did the other night. I have so many things that are before me. The riches of Christ are almost indescribable. They certainly are unfathomable. We can't even begin to imagine. And even though Jesus emptied himself of all of his glory, God says, you know, because you're my son now, I'm going to give you his glory back to you. I've been crucified with Christ. I'm dying to the old man, to the Adam family, and I'm becoming part of the new family, the family of God. Lastly, Paul says this in Galatians, another prepositional statement, is that Christ lives in me. Christ lives in me. Not only do I live in him, that stress of into him, immersion into him, but Christ lives in me. Think about that. Before time began, before any of this was, God existed. Three and one, one and three, the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They existed in perfect harmony. God didn't create us because he was lonely, as I've heard some people say. He doesn't need us. He had perfect fellowship, per perfect society already through his Godhead. There were no arguments about pride or function or role. No one worried if they got a big piece of the pie. They all knew what they were supposed to be about. They lived in great harmony. And when Christ comes into you, you no longer have to worry about those things either. You leave all that at the door. I don't have to defend myself. I don't have to justify myself. I don't have to do anything. I can just walk right into his throne room. It's an amazing thing.
I've, I've already mentioned, but I'll say it again. When I was a kid, uh, my mom worked all the time. Uh, my dad had died when I was two. So my mom would take us up the hill to our babysitters and drop us off. Uh, we usually get up about 5.30, have some cereal, you know, something very simple. Saturdays on her day off were always reserved for the real breakfast. And we would go up the hill to the babysitters. And we would go in, and it would be so dark, especially in the wintertime. And we'd just sit down on the couch. We were told not to wake anybody up. They were still asleep. And Mom would leave, and she didn't come back till 6 p.m., 7 p.m. We didn't see her all that often. But little by little, we would hear stirrings and people waking up, and the mom would get up, and the boys would come downstairs, and they would sit at their table, and our babysitter would say, what do you guys want for breakfast? Pancakes, French toast, you know, bacon, eggs, sausage. Oh, it sounded so good to my brother and I. That would be so amazing to have that option. But we weren't invited to the table. That just wasn't the setup. She wasn't doing anything evil. That's just the way the arrangement had gone. But it was life like that all the time. Uh, we couldn't just read a book off of their shelf. We had to ask permission. I remember when I was in like uh, third grade, they got a set of world book encyclopedias. Um, they were beautiful. You know, I, I don't know if your heart races when you think of encyclopedias, but uh, that's kind of a weird person I was. So you know, I remember asking, can I read some of these? You know, no. I bought these so that my boys would get educated. So they would learn. Now, unfortunately for her, her boys had no intention of picking up an encyclopedia. So little by little, I'd kind of, you know, just work on her. Do you mind? Do you mind? Do you mind? Finally, she just gave me permission. You can take one. So I would read it. But I always had to put it back, make sure it was perfectly in place. And we had different babysitters over the years, and it was always the same thing. You know, this is ours. This is yours. You don't belong here. You're just visiting. You're here temporarily. You don't have all the privileges that the family has. And you go through that long enough, and we were in that situation for probably a good 10 years, maybe longer. It messes with your identity. You kind of don't know who you are. My mom worked full time. And even though she was a very loving person, and I think the world of her, uh, it was hard as a little kid to, to figure out who was who. And then it came. Uh, sometime in there in my childhood, we got to go to a family reunion. Now, my mom's family is all from northern Iowa, up in Wright County, and they're going to have a big, big family reunion. I'm so excited. And we went up there, and I didn't know what to expect, but they had in the fairgrounds, they had rented one of the big buildings. It was full of picnic tables. And we walked in, and the first thing I noticed were these giant posters on the wall. Now, this was my grandma, my mom's mom's family. And she was one of nine children. And each of the children in that family had a poster on the wall. Ed, Jack, Ray, Harvey. My grandma was the first girl, Ethel, you know, and on down the line. And what was happening is that as you came in the door, you were supposed to go sit in your family grouping. And I just remember being there, walking in. After all these years with babysitters and different people. And I just thought... Dude, this is cool. You know, look at these people. They kind of look like me. <laughs> now, that probably horrifies most of you. You know, that there's 100 Fosters. Yeah, well, they're, they're, they're actually were Shillingtons. They're Irish. Uh, and 
my grandma was sitting there, Ethel, and my grandma just, I don't know, you probably have this in your family structures. She was the one person in this family of nine that everybody looked to. Being the oldest girl, she had watched out for everybody, taken care of everybody, <clears throat> and everybody loved her. But when I walked in, she always had a special greeting for me. She'd be like, "Woo, Dave, Woo, come on over here, David. So, you know, of course, we'd run right over to her, and she would hug my brother Dean and I, and uh, then she'd always whisper something in my ear like, I made pumpkin pie just for you. You know, I made chocolate cookies just for you. You know, and you just instantly, you felt like you belonged there. And I went and sat on the picnic table, and of course, I knew all my grandma's sons and daughters, my aunts and uncles. That was people that I'd see quite often. But after a while, we got up and we went and got plates of food and sat down. And my place I had been sitting was already taken. So I went and sat on this table. I didn't know them, but when I sat down, the lady said to me, now, who are you? And I said, well, I'm, I'm, I'm Dave Foster, and uh, I live in Omaha. And she goes, oh, you're Lois's son, which is Ethel's daughter. Of course. And this is your brother, Dean. And she told me my whole life story. And instantly I felt like, I belong. These are my people. This is where I belong. I hadn't felt that feeling before. It's an amazing, amazing sense of identity. I spent the rest of the day just trying to get to know different cousins, different aunts, great aunts, great uncles. Um, but the important thing was is that I realized that I was living in a foreign land by living in Omaha. I was living in a place that none of the rest of our family lived. And part of the reason I felt so alone is because I was so separated from them. And that when I came back and I sat in there, I was experiencing being at home. That's the way the word says to us. If we live these sanctifying phrases out that Paul is mentioning here, these four, that Christ gave himself for us, that we live in Christ, we're immersed in him. We've been crucified with Christ so that we no longer are living, but Christ is living through us. Christ lives in me. My identify, identity is certified. Someday, when this life is over, and God says time is up, there's going to be another family reunion. It's going to be in heaven. And I don't know what your life experiences have been like, but when we get to that family reunion and you go in to take a seat, you're going to belong. And it won't be my grandma welcoming you, right? It's going to be Jesus himself. Woo, David! Come on over here. I've been waiting so long to see you. I've been waiting to put you in your chair, to let you know you belong right here. And the cool thing about all this is that before we get to that point, we get to go to church. We get to hang out with our family right here. It's just a little taste, a little foretaste of what's coming. You're welcome. You belong. You should be here. We need you, and you need us. That's what it means to be sanctified. You're not on your own. This world may be going crazy, but this family right here, we got your back. We're part of the situation with you. And that's an awesome thing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. I praise you for your word. What an inspiring and just life-fulfilling passage of scripture.
Father, may we live the way that we're supposed to live in Christ. May we grow every day understanding what it means to be sanctified. And Father, we look forward to the time when we can come home, when you're waiting for us to greet us, and we find a seat at that table. Lord, then we'll know who we are for, full, for sure and in our fullness. But in the meantime, may you bless this church and your churches all over this world. And may your people always find a home there. In Jesus' name, amen.